Hello, hello and welcome everybody to season two of Yes OBS. We've made it. We made it. Our seven fans were, <laughs> <laughs> were crying out. <laughs> we're crying out for a new season. Apologies it's taken until March to get this one out, everybody, but I was beaten so badly in the Christmas special. It's yeah. taken it's taken three months for me to recover. He's been in a padded cell. <laughs> it's it's uh, he barely could feed himself. <laughs> well, I could barely feed myself anyway. Yeah, that's true. That's so that, true. that was nothing new there. <laughs> so what sort of facts have you got for this one then, Paul? Um, I d- I've got some good ones written down. I'm going to drop in on a couple of them. I haven't really decided which ones I'm going to use yet. What about you? Uh, just Roman history. It's, it's all As I've always. got. always. <laughs> yeah. It's all I've got. You've reg- regressed. <laughs> well, living in that padded cell for three months, you know, it's it's all I could think of was Roman history. <laughs> well, yes, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I say we just launch straight into season okay. two now, Paul. That's fine. Let's go for it. Let's go. So, Paul, right. as you know, um, I do love a bit of Roman history. Yes. I feel I might be overusing the Roman history facts a bit here, considering they seem to crop up every other episode now. Mm-hmm. But we'll get through it. Exactly. It's because I daren't touch science ever again. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably for the best. Exactly. But as you know, Paul, we're both we're quite lucky that we live in the northeast of England. The right. best place in the world. Exactly. And we live very close to Hadrian's Wall. And I don't know if you know much about the fort kind of bang in the middle of Hadrian's Wall, Vindolanda. I've heard of it. That's good. Well, how much do you know about it? Just kind of gauge your knowledge first before I tell my lies. I mean, before... <laughs> um, I know its name. Mm-hmm. I think it might be... Um, that. I think that's it. I think I might have gone once. <laughs> <laughs> As a child, maybe, do you think? Or? I th- did, um, it might be a school trip. Uh, they all the school trips blur together. They do. That, I think that's a pretty common one up for like schools in the northeast. They take yeah. them to Vindolanda. Yeah. But basically, it, there was such a great historical find here. They found hundreds of letters written by normal soldiers, normal people, mm-hmm. and it kind of it gives a real insight into kind of what Roman life was for normal people. Back okay. Then. That's interesting. The annoying thing is, Haggard Hawks tweeted about certain aspects. I, I know of, that bloke. <laughs> Of certain aspects. I, I got this fact well before you'd made this tweet, by the way. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say that I'm not copying off a haggard hawks fact. I, what The tweet was about it's some letters that were always used at the start of... Exactly. I've letter. written those down just right. in case anyone's interested. So haggard hawks tweeted something interesting about how every most Roman letters would be signed at the beginning with Sivalis bene est ego valeo, which basically means if you are well, all is well and I am well too. But they were just kind of abbreviated to S-V-B-E-E-V. I remember that tweet. It was a good one. Haggard Hawks is great. I don't know it who is. I don't is. Know, I don't know who runs that account. Yeah, but, um, I'd like to shake his hand. <laughs> exactly. Maybe we should use some of his facts on Yes or BS yes, yeah, maybe. I don't should. know. Who knows? <laughs> but some of the letters you might have seen were from famous historians like Pliny, Pliny the Elder. Yes. Some of the big names who have survived. But I think I think the letter that I put on Haggard Hawks was from Cicero. Exactly. So for the most part, only the big names have survived. Right, okay. But this find at Vindolanda, there was hundreds of letters written on wooden tablets that were right. thrown into a rubbish dump and preserved because of the soil conditions there. Right. So when they dug it up, uh, these hundreds of tablets, you could still read the letters. Right, okay. Now, I'm going to give... These are all... This is all true up to this point. <laughs> oh, so this is false. <laughs> 
my yes or BS fact, I'm going to give you some examples of what was written on these letters. Okay. So, do you believe that normal Roman Britain citizens were writing these letters? Okay. So the fact is, either what you're about to say is a, are true letters, or you've made them up. Yes. All right. Okay. I like this. This is good. So, because I I don't want to take anything away from the historical find at Vindolanda, because it's mm-hmm. it may, I I like to go and visit again actually. Oh, you've been. I have. Was it a school trip? I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, just to give you a bit of background on Vindolanda as well, did you know who actually manned the fort? Uh, was it Romans? No. Oh, really? It wasn't Romans. It was one of their auxiliary cohorts. And I've got the name here. They were the Cohors for Galorum Equitata, or the fourth cohort of Gauls. Gauls? Yes. Oh, right. So it was quite common for the Romans to not just use Roman soldiers. So they brought these Gauls in to kind of man the fort. Mm. But it looks like they were also hiring some local British soldiers for the garrison as well. Right. Because there was an interesting find there. The Gauls dedicated a statue to the goddess Gallia and they'd written with full support of the British-born troops. Oh, wow. Okay. So it looks like at this fort, there were only Gauls and Britons. All the officers were Romans, though. Right. They were kind of looking after the place. Right. That's interesting. There you go. Some extra bonus facts about the fort. All right, okay. Bunch of golds hanging around up there. Was it made out of gall stones? (sighs) I'm determined to lose every every (laughs) listener we've got. (laughs) All seven of them. That number changes every time I make that joke. Actually, the fort down the road in South Shields was manned by Syrians as well. I've been to the one in South Shields. Yeah, it's, it, what do you think? Did you not used to work there? I did my work experience as an archae- archaeological dig there. Oh, there's a bonus fact. My big finds and my archaeological dig were two chicken bones mm-hmm. and a roof slate. Wow. Were the chicken bones out of your own KFC? <laughs> <laughs> I planted there after lunch to say, wow, look at what I found. And a, like a Roman slate tile. Yeah. Oh, wow. So up to this point, all of that is true. Right. Okay. Because I couldn't do a disservice to Roman history. Right. I've got a, this is where. It is your niche. This is where the BS is starting to come in. Okay. I mean, the true. <laughs> so true. the question is, are these letters genuine or not? Yes. Okay. So right. letter one. One of the Roman commanders at the garrison, it looks like they'd ran out of beer and he was blaming the local British soldiers for this. That sounds about right. And he, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> did, we, did we man this true. fort? <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing is he had like a derogatory nickname for the Britons, which was Britunculi, which means little Britons little or Britons, yeah. wretched little Britons. All right. Okay. Because he, he clearly this Roman commander didn't like them very much Mm -hmm. so he was writing home complaining about them oh right okay saying he's i'd rather not be here Mm -hmm. i'd rather be somewhere else right okay that is letter one right letter two somebody wrote directly to emperor hadrian himself we don't know if this was a soldier or one of the civilian people living in the town around it but he said as befits an honest man i implore your majesty not to allow me an innocent man to be beaten with rods so it looks like he was being punished for something. Beaten with rods. That was going to be the punishment. So he, who knows what he's done. But Good we, grief. All, all that survived was this letter. But obviously it was never sent yeah. because it was found in the rubbish dump with a load of other... So he presumably was beaten by We rods. presumed he was beaten. So whatever he'd done... Oh, well, he was an innocent man, apparently. So well, the mind boggles. It's like us writing to the Queen to say... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it. I'm They're not going to... paying my parking tickets. Tell the council. <laughs> 
the council are going to beat me with rods for not paying the parking ticket. Wow. Um, one of my favourites, there were a pair of brothers. They looked like they had the grain trade wrapped up in okay. the north. Octavius looks, I think he's the younger brother because he seems to be a bit of an idiot. You know we've got two younger brothers yeah, I was going to say. sitting in this room right now. <laughs> because he's writing to his older brother, kind of he's desperate for cash. He'd gone to another grain trader and he said, I've gone to this guy and I've promised to buy 5,000 Mordai of grain. Now one Mordai is about a cubic foot. Wow, that's so he's, a lot. He's put down a 300 denarii deposit. Right. Which bear in mind that's about the average annual wage for a Roman soldier. Right. So he's put down this massive, massive deposit to buy a shit ton of grain. Yeah. And then he's wrote to his brother and said, I don't actually have the money to pay for the rest of the grain. Right. Can you send me 500 denarii as soon as you can? Otherwise, I will be terribly embarrassed. Wow. And I think he was hoping to sell this grain on to, who knows, maybe the Roman garrison. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a good deal. He was also supposed to go and collect some hides for his brother. But he said, I didn't go and get those hides you asked me to. Because the roads were bad and I didn't want to injure the animals. <laughs> so he looks like he's a feckless, lazy brother. This is like carry on along the road. Oh, walk. it gets better. This was a long letter he wrote. Uh, the last part, he says, also, I tried selling some redacted, some of it. Some of it's gone. Some of it's gone. Yeah. To some of the messmates, which is the soldiers. Right. But the, the bloke who was going to sell the stuff to didn't turn up. So he's out of pocket again. Oh, wow. He's having a bad day. He's having day. a bad day. And then at the end, by the way, can you send the money? So he repeats it again. Okay. At the end. And this is pretty desperate. It is. And this ended up in a rubbish dump. Yes. Wow. Yeah, there's hundreds of these. Again, that part is true. These hundreds Good of letters. Good grief. And the last one, this was a letter received. Received so some, at Vindolanda. Received at Vindolanda to one of the soldiers mm-hmm. from a family member somewhere, possibly in Gaul. Said, I have sent you two pairs of socks... From Setuta, two pairs of sandals and two pairs of underpants. Greet Elpis, Tetricus and all of your messmates, with whom I pray that you live in the greatest good fortune. Wow. So I think it could be his mam, back in Gaul. Here's some underpants for you, because I know... This is probably a letter you got off your mam. <laughs> I'd seen through this instantly. <laughs> Anthony, I know you run out of underpants quite a lot. <laughs> Okay. There you go. Those are my example letters. Are these real examples of Roman life on the frontier? Or did I go to town and come up with some believable guff? Mm -hmm. This is interesting Mm -hmm. because I, this does sound very genuine. Mm -hmm. The the thing that I'm finding the least genuine is the fact that that he was sent a pair of socks. Did the Romans Mm -hmm. have socks? Yes, and underpants. They wore socks. Socks and sandals. That's never (laughs) never a good look. It was on the letter. This is what's been translated as socks. Right. Now, the thing is, the flip side of this is that if you made this up, I can imagine that you would drop words like modi and dinari into this Mm. to try and convince me that it was true. Mm. But if these letters were genuine, you would have to use those words anyway. Mm. And I've never heard about this massive find at Vindolanda before, and it's not its not that far away from where we are now, is it? It's not. I forget when they dug them up. I think it was maybe the 70s they first found these, maybe? I don't know. And so they were all on wooden... Wooden... Tablets. Tablets. Do they know why they ended up in this big pit? No, it just they were just chucked in there. It was just a massive rubbish dump. Maybe it was like a sort of... Like a Roman postman on his last day. <laughs> No. Roman postman. <laughs> not, not today. He just dumps the ball. Mm. Um, 
Okay. So, th- right, okay. You had a guy getting socks. You mm-hmm. have a guy who's having the worst day of his life organizing all of these deals. Yep. You have a man complaining about... Lack the, of beer. Lack of beer. Because of the, the little Britons. Right. Okay. Yeah. Certainly no one these days would complain about a lack of beer in the north of England. <laughs> um, and what was the second one? The guy was about to get beaten by rods. Oh, yes. But he wrote okay, to Ever Hadrian to ask him if he could not be beaten by <clears> rods. <throat> oh, okay. This does sound very... Yeah, this could be completely true. But see you and your Romans. <laughs> I could see you making these up. What's your gut saying? My gut is that they're true. Ah, oh, this is hard. Okay. Are you, are you going to take a punt? Have you just thrown these words in just to wind me up and to kind of convince me that that's completely true? This is the flip side of what I do when I drop a quote in or, or make mm. up a Dr. Seuss book. Mm. You could have made these up and you're trying to get me at my own ploy. Ah. Mm. Oh, okay. I'm going to... Um, no, I'm going to say that this is BS. I'm going to say you've made these letters up. All BS? Oh, this is really hard. No, okay. Yeah, the, you've made those letters up. It's all BS. All of these letters are completely true. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, I knew I was going to get I've that wrong. got a couple of others as well. Um, there was one guy, he wrote a letter. He said, a friend sent me 50 oysters from Cordenovi. I'm sending you half so that you may know I'm in good health, you most irreligious fellow who hasn't even sent me a single letter. Wow. Which reminds me of, like, your texts. <laughs> <laughs> and it was also, there's one of the earliest examples of a woman's handwriting oh, ever recorded. Wow. Uh, she was inviting people to her birthday party. Oh, bless her. Uh, she was, it looks like she was the wife of one of the higher-ups at the fort. Mm-hmm. And she was going around. Oh, wow. Oh, and her invitation ended up in a rubbish dump. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe someone had received the invitation. And put it in a rubbish dump. <laughs> Wow. After they'd gone to the party, maybe. Oh, right. Yes, I suppose so. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, wow. That, but, oh, I should have I should have trusted my instinct. I was so sure you would, on the very first fact, you would try and get me at my own game. Because that, that's where I was going for, because you've done this to me so many times. <laughs> you've gone detail, detail, detail. Wow. So that's you good. Go. Those, yeah. You, that's interesting that that's sort of a genuine Roman life. Mm, loads wow. of insight into just normal people. 50 oysters. Yeah. Who good sends food. 50 oysters to someone? Oysters don't... You've got to eat them fresh, haven't you? That's the thing. So they've got to come from the coast and then they've got to go all the way to the middle of Hadrian's Wall. So surely they'll be not... Maybe that was the point. He was trying to... Make... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to offload these on you <laughs> because you're an irreligious fellow. Yeah, who never writes back. Yeah. But no, there you go. I'm wow. feeling... That's my... a good start. Okay. So let's move so on to your... So much for a clean sweep for Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Preparation is the key, everybody. <laughs> so after that's 1-0 to me there, Jones. And I think... I should have stuck with my guns there. Yeah. Convinced myself that you were going to be playing a trick on the very <laughs> first one. I am genuinely feeling a clean sweep today. Nah. And not only because of the first fact, but the listeners might not know, Paul's just spent about 20 minutes trying to put his fact together. <laughs> well, I wrote these so long ago that um, I've forgotten whether they're true or not. And there was a big detail missing from this that I just needed to double check. He says this, but I think he's... Right, you're going down now, Jones, right? Okay. Yeah, let's see what you got. Okay. Um, right. Have you heard of a film called The Blob? I have. Yeah. Yes. Do you know who was in it? Oh, couldn't tell you. It was the very first feature film that starred Steve McQueen. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know uh, that. it was in 1958. Um, he'd been in films before, but this was his first sort of feature film debut. The plot, I'm sure you know, is about a, a meteorite that crashes and uh, it breaks open and it's got this slime inside it and the slime starts dissolving people and absorbing them. <laughs> it rings vague bells. Gets, yeah. gets bigger and redder and angrier and um, starts eating bigger and bigger things. Sounds a bit like you. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh. Thought I'd get in there with that one before you. <laughs> um, it, the working title was The Glob. Oh, they changed the name, the Glob. Uh, it was actually called the Glob that girdled the Earth. <laughs> was one of the working titles of it, but they changed it to the Blob. Do you um, know why they changed it? Incidentally, or? I do actually. The Glob was oh. a title that was already taken. It was, um, I think, it was a comic book was already called the Glob, so they couldn't. Uh, use obviously, it. you didn't take off then the Glob. No, it's perhaps it's not the best or most commercial title for. You don't something. see that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No, all, you do don't. You? Not the Glob. Uh, one last fact about the the glob, mm-hmm. or about the blob. The title song was written by Burt Bacharach. Really? Yeah, and I can't remember there being a song. God, but, but, uh, what decade was this again? The 1950s, 1958. They were a crazy time in the yeah, 50s. I know, you, just, of... you could just do anything you wanted yeah. back then. But anyway, anyway, my fact is mm-hmm. that um, as daft as the blob was, or the glob that girdled <laughs> the earth, it's based on a true story. <laughs> But yes, we're moving on from this one. <laughs> okay, so um, the story is that in September 1950, mm-hmm. so about, well, yeah, eight years before the, the film actually came out, a report appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, under the headline, Flying Saucer Dissolves. You... <laughs> Go on. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the report said that on the night of the 26th of September, two police officers saw an object fall from the sky in uh, rural um, Pennsylvania. And so they drove to where they thought it had landed and they found a large mass of pale purple jelly about six foot across. And they thought this was very odd. So um, this being the 1950s and long before evidence... CSI, forensics. CSI. uh, One of the police officers just put his hand in it (laughs) uh, and picked some of it up and it sort of just dissolved in his hand, leaving what he called an odourless residue. It's interesting. Yeah, so it just sort of disappeared. So I'm guessing it was kind of like, you know that hand sanitizer gel (laughs) that just sort of melts away? I'm guessing it was like that. Um, And after about 30 minutes, the entire thing had just sort of dissipated and the the ground was just wet. There was nothing left of it at all, Um, which is a bit embarrassing because by that point they'd called for backup Mm. and the FBI had gotten involved. (laughs) Um, So they all turned up and there was literally nothing left of this this sort of goop. So it was reported locally that this had happened and that everyone was very puzzled by it. The um, New York Times then picked up on this story, reported it exactly the same, slightly tongue-in-cheek sort of like... Mm look what these rubes are up to in the countryside (laughs) kind of thing. So it wasn't reported very sensibly. But uh, they did say that the FBI had asked the Air Force if they could investigate. This is getting out of hand. Yeah, probably less to do with the fact that there was a glob, but more to do with the fact that something had fallen from the sky and they couldn't explain what it was. Um, So the Air Force had been asked to get involved, uh, but they declined. (laughs) <laughs> um, and the, the story kind of went no further conspiracy right there that's why <laughs> yes, they declined exactly. so uh, the story kind of ends there but uh, it remains kind of unexplained but there is 
a phenomenon, what's called star jelly um, or astral mixing, which is a bit of a... Okay. Which I'm, is an odd I'm kind I'm trying of... to think of some jokes around star <laughs> jelly, but I, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's probably best not to go into it. Uh, it's also called astral mixing, which is for very, very, very long time. Um, there's been an idea that slime sort of turns up during meteor showers mm-hmm. um, and the various sort of folkloric explanations about where the slime comes from. It's actually just probably either a slime mould that in certain atmospheric conditions goes a bit berserk or it's perhaps uh, like a byproduct of frog spawn so when you get these... <laughs> how big was this boat? <laughs> six, six foot across <laughs> that so, a frog <laughs> I'm guessing there was maybe more than one frog um, so when they have their sort of mating balls uh, right. they're all sort of <laughs> writhing around on top of each other uh, that it's perhaps some sort of byproduct of that that's what this star jelly thing kind of gets um, explained as but for precisely what this purple glob was um, it, it remains unsolved but it was this story that inspired uh, the scriptwriter of the blob who was a man called Irvin H. Milgate mm. and he read the story and the story developed from there and we ended up with Steve McQueen, eight years later, right. and Bert Bacharach, and um, yeah, and the blob. I have a couple of interrogation questions. Okay. <clears throat> so it was six foot across. Mm-hmm. It could be from frog spawn. Well, the explanation now is that this slime that people find and go, oh, this is a bit unusual, is from frog spawn. That wasn't suggested at the time because the story just sort of dissipated after a couple of days. And did you explain there why it kind of dissolved away to nothing? Um, no, I, I I don't know what happens with that stuff. I'm okay. I'm just sort of um, yeah. Right, I think I've never found any star jelly I, myself I, I, to, carry, <laughs> to carry out experiments. Okay, I think the star jelly is real. Mm-hmm. Just, it, it genuinely is real. I was can, going to say just because like you would you. Would have to have made something up called star jelly. That's that's too much of a yeah. Uh, of a no, stretch. I, I, I didn't just take some LSD. Okay, so that and write is this. real. So the question is: Have you just tacked this on to? Well, you've googled star jelly, or you found something like, oh, that's a bit like the blob. Mm-hmm. Oh, the glob. Please. The glob. Oh, it's, no, I do apologise. I do apologise. Before it girdles the earth. I think this is something you've peppered with truths like the glob, mm-hmm. which is the original name. Um, but I don't think it was the inspiration for the blob. What year did the blob come out? 1958. 1958. And this this happened in September 1950. Is there any other records of this ever happening um, in the past? Oh, well, I suppose if it's Star Jelly is a thing. It yeah, it, it is a thing, yes. It's, I've, I've, it's been recorded since, well, for centuries, this mm-hmm. this kind of odd ooze. And, and for some reason, it's become associated with meteor showers and things. Why did they call the FBI as well? Because they were so puzzled by it, um, and probably because they saw something fall from the sky or thought mm. that they'd seen something fall from the sky. Right. My gut says you've just tacked on a poor lie to some other truths. <laughs> I don't think the blob... I, uh, it's such a realistic film. <laughs> I think the blob would just come from the the dark parts of somebody's brain. I think I don't think they would need to be inspired by six feet of frog spawn residue <laughs> before they would uh, go for it. Right, I'm ready for. I'm going for a guess already. On okay, this what are you saying? I think this is BS. You've just tacked on a load of nonsense. Okay, final answer. Yes, that story. Is true. No, <laughs> yeah, it, is. it isn't. Yeah. Stop lying to Someone me. Someone needed inspiration to come up with the blob. 
<laughs> no, it's completely true. Um, really? Yeah, there's uh, two police officers saw something uh, called for backup, so there's four police officers involved. Then the FBI got involved, got handed over the Air Force. Ah. Um, yeah, it was all reported, and and it's it is unexplained what these people found, but the report was enough to to inspire the blob. Really? I'm still going with the the frog spawn thing, just because <laughs> it's six feet across. How tall was it as well? This blob. Um, oh, I haven't written that down, but it, remembering reading up on it, I'm I'm sure it was like a foot deep. I'm sure there's quite Jesus a lot of it. Jesus right. Yeah, but. I... Um, no, completely true. Well, yeah, that is my afternoon sorted researching star jelly <laughs> in its various forms. Well done, Paul. Pulled one back. Thank you. One all. We'll move on to my next one. Okay, Paul. Well done on convincing me. I still don't think that's true. I'm going to Google mm. this and I'm going to have a revisionist episode of the SBS. <laughs> we go back to and fact check everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure somebody does that anyway. But for my next fact, mm-hmm. this might not sound as exciting as you think when I first go into this one. Again, you could start every one of your facts with that. <laughs> no, I don't like this. It's usually me who's the one throwing the abuse your way. <laughs> But we're going to talk about the coal industry (laughs) from the 1840s to the 1870s. Right, okay. Hang on, let me take take a shot of coffee. There's a point to all of this. The coal industry from the 1840s to the 1870s. Exactly. Basically, we're going to talk about your dissertation. (laughs) I can't remember what my dissertation was on, actually. Some load of that interesting? I was going to say. Right. But it, that's only a segue in. Okay. That was my little right. jokey start, because, oh, isn't coal boring? Ooh. Yes. Because I want to talk about a coal transport ship, a German coal transport ship. Okay. Have you ever heard of the SS Nürnberg? No. It was built in Germany in 1873. Okay. It was kind of known at the time for being one of the biggest ships in the world, actually. It oh, was really? about three and a half thousand tonnes. Well, actually, one of the biggest coal transport ships at the right. time. Right. Okay. So built in 1873, it's not long after Germany's been unified. Um, right. I think that was 1871, Germany came together. So Germany kind of, they want to get in on the world stage. They're right, we need mm-hmm. like a proper merchant fleet. We've got some coal mines open. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going great guns here. Okay. They basically wanted to try and compete with the British. But yet this is where the coal facts are coming in, you see. Right, okay. It's a rich tapestry. The British were producing around 50 million metric tonnes of coal as to the Germans' 2 million metric oh, tonnes wow, of coal. Oh, wow, okay. We had that much coal. Oh, it's, it's absolutely everywhere. Oh, wow. Anywhere in the northeast, just fine. Yeah, that's true. It's fall, you fall over coal pits. <laughs> I fell into one on the way over here. <laughs> you <were> pushed. <laughs> By you. <laughs> but that was kind of... Those were the 1840s stats, but they're... Germans hadn't really improved that much by the time they started building the coal fleet. Okay. But they needed coal to power their own industrial revolution. Right. But they refused to buy it from the British. Okay. Because being rivals and they didn't didn't want to become dependent on them. Right. Okay. So basically, this coal ship would make its runs from Hamburg in Germany Mm -hmm. to Norfolk, Virginia. Now, West Virginia was a big coal mining area in the States. Still is, I think. So they would deliver the coal to Norfolk. Virginia, uh-huh. and the Germans would get the call from there. That seems like an oddly circuitous thing to do, considering there's you... 50 million metric tons yeah. of coal <laughs> about 300 miles away. You don't know how spiteful the European powers were towards each other I can during imagine, the Victorian yeah. Okay, yeah, I can imagine. 
Actually, incidentally, when I was researching the port of Hamburg, I found a, a, an interesting fact. There's a clothes shop in Hamburg today called Chicks and Dicks. That's nice. Why? Why? How did you find that out? <laughs> Bec- because I was researching this fact about Hamburg and the ships you that were researching there. Chicks and Dicks. <laughs> Is it just a normal clothes shop? I don't know. I think it is. I didn't. I you can't... can't drop a fact like that and not know <laughs> anything else about it. Well, the thing is, Paul, I couldn't read German when I was researching it. Oh right. So okay. I just saw so it. Just I don't know how it came up. I think it came up as I was looking around the port area. Let's not question how this came up. I basically, uh, I, I, I now that's thrown me right off. Okay, right. Get See, back that, to, that was all part of the plan. Get back to your cool ship. So, so anyway, this ship, the SS Nuremberg, it's making one of its trips. And it goes missing. Okay. Which ships will want to do before Marconi's and the wireless came yeah. in. They would go missing all the time, never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Not an unusual thing, but this is where it went interesting. After going missing in 1874, it reappeared again in January 1876 in a shipping lane. It had just drifted in. This is where the interesting part, the crew was completely gone. So when it left in 1874, that at that time, the Atlantic journey took on average about eight days. So the mm-hmm. logbooks were perfectly normal up until four days into the trip. Right. It just completely stopped. Right. So when it drifted back into the shipping lanes again, captain's gone, the whole crew's gone. Right. And there's no explanation as to what happened. The ship that found them, the SS Belgic, they weren't big enough to kind of tow the ship back to port. Right. So they boarded it to see if they could find any survivors. They couldn't. They picked up the captain's logbook as evidence to say mm-hmm. we found the SS Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's happened. We should maybe send out a search party with a larger ship ship and a salvage party. Right. So it took the logbook back to port. A search party was then sent out, but ship was gone and it's never been seen again since. So the entire ship was gone? The entire ship disappeared. It couldn't drifted, find it again. drifted off again somewhere. Right, okay. There's now, my... You see, I started off with coal. Yeah. And I moved beautifully into the face of a large coal ship. <laughs> see, th- this is where marketing comes in. I'd maybe market that story as a story about a ghost ship, not, <laughs> not about th- the coal industry in the 1870s. <laughs> uh, okay, now that's interesting. Mm. I, yeah, now I know that there are lots of true stories about ghost ships and things and about strange mm. disappearances at sea. And I can remember reading a story ages ago about a similar kind of thing that the ghost ship had been spotted and the crew had gone and everybody, another ship pulled up alongside it. Everyone got on to find out what had happened, came back and that and that crew ended up being accused of piracy or something. Really? Um, Do you know what that ship was? Oh, I, no, I don't. I just, I just have mm. this vague recollection of salvage party, the kind mm. of the heroes who came into this story ended up being kind of accused of <laughs> foul play. Um, so I know that it's, there is a sort of precedent for this sort of thing. Mm. Um, this is an interesting one, though, that it's, that it's such a, a big ship mm. uh, this would happen to. And mm. th- so the crew had all gone. No sign of anything untowards. Uh, actually, the captain even had a gun in his safe. And right. that was still locked in the safe. Right, so it's not yeah. like if there was pirates, mm. he would have got that out or something. Yeah, or... they kind of they they blew open the safe. Maybe maybe they did kill all these people and just took the logbook. I don't know, but so they blew open the safe to try and find what any evidence of what might have happened. Right, but they just found just the captain's gun. Right. In there. Okay. Wow. It's actually quite a famous story. It's they keep the logbook in the Hamburg Museum now. Oh right. Okay. Now, you see, the thing is, I'm instantly going, oh yeah, they probably do, and they totally might not. You might have just made this up. <laughs> The SS Nuremberg. Yes. So it was a German collier ship. Mm-hmm. Would operate between 
Virginia Hamburg. coast of America yes. and Hamburg. Yeah. Okay, and it was full of coal. On the way back, it was full of coal. But so, this was this was on this was coming from Hamburg to Virginia, so that it was, oh, right. it was empty. Okay. All they had okay. was the coal to power the ship. Right, and it disappeared. Disappeared. It was written off. They thought it might have been lost in a storm. They didn't know what happened to it. It was again. It was after almost like two, two almost two years later when it reappeared in a shipping lane. Just sort of just drifted. adrift. Wow. Okay. The thing is, I really want this to be true, mm. but you could still have made this up. And you just peppered it with all these statistics about how much coal Britain was making at the time. <laughs> um, okay. Um, okay, I'm going to make a punt on this. I think this is true. It makes sense that, yeah, the historical context makes sense. I can imagine that, yes, European superpowers at that time would not want to collaborate too openly with each other. Mm. So, yeah, they would. Germany would want to trade with, uh, trade with the states. <sighs> yes, this does happen to ships. Yes, there are stories like this. Have you just made this ship up, though? This is so annoying. I hate this game. <laughs> okay, all right. No, I'm going to say that this is true. Saying true? Yeah. This entire fact I made up. Oh! <laughs> no! The, the core facts are true. Yeah. Which is why I started with them. Oh, so you've made the ship up? Uh, the ship is a real ship, but right. it, it never went missing or sank or anything. Oh! It was a collier ship as well, I think. That's so annoying. See, now I'm thinking, oh, well, at least, you know, we can go and watch the look at the logbook in Hamburg. Movie, but you can't because you made <laughs> no, it up. Made it up. Ah. That was actually, that was an on-the-fly fact. I thought that would give it a bit more believability. Oh, it, well, it worked. That's yes. so annoying. Oh, Yeah, I kind of wanted that to be true. Now, I'm I'm sure that my fact is true. That I think that was the one I first started to look for. Right. Because that, that rang a bell. I think I knew that story before. I'm sure that's true. But I, th- so I think, but I thought, uh, he'd probably know that. <sighs> so I'll make up my own ghost ship. That's annoying. Story. That's a good story, though. Uh, I like that story. Thank you. Tell and me I- more about the coal industry <laughs> in the late 1900s. So we've got every fact wrong. We're flying. Yeah, we're doing really well. Let's see if either of us can pull it round on this one. Right, okay. Uh, This is a good one. Okay. Promises, promises. Um, All right. Bertrand Russell. Yes. Famous British philosopher and historian and mathematician. Basically, all-round polymath. He was just sort of good at everything. Um, yeah, he was uh, born in 1872. He was Welsh. I didn't know. He, I didn't know he was Welsh. No, I, I didn't know that Yeah, he was born in Wales. Uh, he was born in 1872. Died in 1970. He was Jeez. 97 when he died. But yeah, very illustrious guy. Uh, he got the N- Nobel Prize in Literature, which I also didn't know. Uh, he was a Cambridge <laughs> Fellow. Um, uh, yeah, just sort of all round great at everything. But in 1920, Bertrand Russell was invited to lecture for a year at the Northern University of Peking, which is now Beijing in China. And it was obviously a great honour and he was very keen to accept it. But he almost didn't accept the invitation for one reason and do you know what that reason is i don't the invite came from someone called fooling you <laughs> oh boy <laughs> <laughs> okay so by um by 1920 um burton russell was already uh, really very accomplished um it was in 1905 that he kind of established himself as a, as a philosopher he published something called on denoting which was to do with how the mm. mind sort of interprets things and that had kind of put him up on the sort of world stage of fantastic thinkers of the 20th century so yeah by 1920 was very famous and very mm. well established as a as a philosopher so yeah this invitation turned up and uh, he sort of hummed and hard about whether to accept it or not because it was signed by fooling you <laughs> f 
U, so to speak. I was... L-I-N-G. <laughs> Y-U. Okay. And that's, that's who had invited him. He thought, as you would, that this was just a practical joke, probably sent mm. by one of his friends at Cambridge or something like that. But he decided to accept the invite, travelled all the way to China with his lover at the time, Dora Black, eventually Dora Russell, as mm. was uh, his second wife. And they arrived in October of 1920. And it turned out that it was a completely genuine Invite. Dora Russell wrote in her memoirs, uh, which were published in 1975, that the mystery was solved in the person of Professor Fu, Mm. a tall northern Chinese man, young and handsome and of extremely fine presence. Mm. Uh, So the whole way across, they they, um, travelled all the way across to China, kind of didn't know whether this was true or not, that they were going to turn up and... No one was going to know why Bertrand Russell was suddenly in Peking. Uh, but no, it was completely true. This is a doozy. This one. <laughs> right. Am I double bluffing this, you with oh, fooling you? Oh. Um, but yeah, th- that, that is the story that uh, Bertrand Russell was invited to lecture in China for a year and almost didn't take the post because of the man's name. I can completely see you googling Chinese names. <laughs> Chinese names and punchlines of joke. <laughs> and then deliberately doing this to me to say, oh, I got you because I was fooling you. <laughs> Just, ah, oh, there's like a quadruple bluff <laughs> going on this one because it's, it sounds really believable. Mm-hmm. But then, oh, is this another cat in the hat? Dr. Zeus thing? It's, I mean, it's I a don't relatively trust... short fact. It's just... I don't trust anything from anyone anymore. I just live rocking back and forth on my chair. I've finally broken you as a man. Oh, this, I don't even know how to start interrogating this. The, there's not very much to interrogate. I mean, mm. the, the fact itself is just that the invite came from what someone called What was he lecturing you. over there? Or teaching? I'm guessing that it would have been philosophy. I'm mm. guessing that he would have been talking sort of his own ideas. Um, but yeah, he was out there for a year. He returned in uh, 1921. Right. My first instinct is to say, this has to be true. You, you, <laughs> you wouldn't. Oh, would you? I'm all over the place. I'm just going to have to say this is, this is true. Is it? Have I quintuple bluffed you? <laughs> God. Every time I think I've got an answer, my gut then says no, it's the exact opposite of what he's just said. Do you have any more questions? I don't know. The fact that you don't know what he was teaching, though, that makes I, I'm guessing me... it was, um, yeah, I, I haven't written that down. I'm guessing that it, he was just out there sort of lecturing his own ideas. Because mm. by, by that point, he was very well established. It would have been 15 years, really, since he'd, mm. he'd kind of come out with his earliest papers. So where else was he lecturing at the time? Oh. Uh, Cambridge. I think he was based in London, but he became a Cambridge fellow. I'm mm. actually not sure, because he was imprisoned during the First World War as really? a, a pacifist. Oh, I didn't know that. That's um, interesting. So, and I th- I've got a feeling he lost his job at Cambridge mm. because of that. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether he was still lecturing at Cambridge at this point. But, yeah, he, he was still certainly an academic and mm. a great, great thinker. Right. I'm just going to have to take a punt now and mm-hmm. say, this has to be true. You can't have... If you've done this to me... On fooling you. Look at that. Don't you smirk like what? that. I, what? Oh. Right, true. Done. That's okay. the final answer. Final answer? Yeah. That story? S- swear to God, if this is false, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> that story is true. Oh, thank God. <laughs> what a oh, brilliant what? story, though. 
That's amazing. Yeah. One of the greatest minds of the 20th century thought he was being literally fooled by someone called fooling you. I actually think my heart rate's gone up. I'm, I was that nervous <laughs> being fooled on that one. You know, I don't even care losing the point. It was just it was just a pleasure to tell that story and watch you writhe around in agony for five minutes. <laughs> You've broken me. I don't think I can do me next night. <laughs> well, we're wrapping the podcast up. It's been a great run, See everyone. See you next time, everybody. <laughs> Okay, it's now 3-1. And look, just thank God I got that last one. If you'd got me on fooling you. Um, that's really interesting, though. That's yeah, completely a, true. It's such a 1920s thing to happen as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's not like, you know, you can just sort of email them and just make sure it's completely true. Or like look them up on LinkedIn. <laughs> exactly. Send them a letter and get a reply six weeks later. But so 3-1, hoping to make it 4-1 now. All I can do is get a draw again. This keeps happening. We live in a perpetual draw. You know, I, I, I don't care if I lose this episode. Fooling you is just, it's, it's made my <laughs> It was year. worth it. Yeah. Now, you might remember a few weeks back, Paul, mm-hmm. you really got me on a Tolkien and C.S. Lewis fact. They dressed as polar bears. They were dressed yeah. as polar bears at the yeah. New Year's party. Now, you got me on that one. That was completely true. Completely true. Amazing fact. So, I thought I'm going to have to throw it back at you. Right. And I just started researching the hell out of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis to find what is an obscure fact you might not have heard about them. Okay. And we landed on C.S. Lewis. Okay. Now, that's a shame because I don't know anything about him. If this that's is talking, I... <laughs> I'd be all right, maybe. That's what I thought. Okay. Did you know that C.S. Lewis had a cat that had narcolepsy? <laughs> uh, no, give, I didn't. I'm going to give you some background to this fact. Hang on, let me just, <laughs> let me just take this in for a minute. C.S. Lewis... He of the Chronicles of Narnia had a cat that had narcolepsy. Yes. Okay. Now. Please continue. C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you knew he was a big animal lover. He was an early adopter of animal rights, actually. I did know that. Was he Was he vegetarian as well? I think he was. I've got a feeling him and George Bernard Shaw or something. He had he had loads of pets. I think I've just got names of some of his dogs here. Um, one of his dogs was called Mr. Papworth. That's the best dog name ever. <laughs> if I get a dog, I'm going to call it Mr. Papworth. Another dog was called Tim. Oh, that's he's put, put less effort into Tim's name. Tim's a little bit short changed. And there. he's got another dog called Troddles. Troddles. This, now, what happened ama- to Tim? <laughs> he's got Mr. Ta- Papworth and Troddles. <laughs> and then Tim. He was having an off day when he named Tim. Did Tim have a surname? <laughs> I don't Poor think Tim. So. I don't think he did. Who was his least favourite dog? <laughs> Take a guess. Poor Tim. <laughs> so this isn't about Tim the dog. What a shame. This I is, want to know more about him. This is about Granger the cat. Granger. Okay. So he's kind of he's got a middling on the cat's name. Yeah, Granger's an impressive name for a cat. It's it no is. Troddles. It's not. Oh, Mr. Papworth. Mr. Papworth. I might make that my new Twitter handle. <laughs> at Mr. Papworth. Just. See if I get any more followers off the back of it. I'm going to change Haggard Talks to Troddles. <laughs> or Tim. Tim. Yeah, poor Tim. Yeah. But he had... So this poor cat, Granger, had narcolepsy. Mm-hmm. So when um, C.S. Lewis was writing about it, he would say Granger would fall into a deep sleep abruptly or become compartially or completely paralysed and then awaken with complete recovery as if nothing had happened. He could apparently wake him up by banging like a, a pot next to him oh. or giving him a shake or, or a gentle petting as well, actually, would wake up Granger. Right. 
But apparently humans aren't the only ones to have narcolepsy. It's common across the animal kingdom. I didn't know that. Mm. Or have you made this up? <laughs> well, actually, the, the extreme form of narcolepsy is actually called cataplexy. Oh, now I've heard that, yes. Yeah, so that's actually the more, that's the paralysis yes. side of it. That's got nothing to do with cats, though. It's not. So it's completely coincidental that that has... It's oh, did you read the word cataplexy and then make this up? No, I did <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that was it. That's basically the fact. You never know. It might have even inspired Aslan. I don't know. I imagine if Aslan had narcolepsy. <laughs> well, he wasn't actually sacrificed. In no, he was just asleep the whole time. <laughs> just asleep and then woke up again. Right, Okay. C.S. Lewis had a narcoleptic cat called Granger. Granger. Right. <laughs> I don't know where to begin with this. Now, I I didn't know animals could have narcolepsy, but I remember mm. a thing, like a viral video ages ago, of those goats that go sort of completely stiff that's when the they try to run away. That's the second mention we've had of those goats. I don't I don't think that's um that's not a narcolepsy thing. That's just a it's a fear response or right, okay. where they suddenly freeze and play dead. Now, that's, so so yeah. this is different. This is just. The cat just falls asleep. Usually, when it's excited, C.S. Lewis would say, if like sometimes over meal times, if like he knew asleep. food was coming, he would just boom, collapse. Right. Okay. I can remember seeing a documentary where there was a lady, some poor woman who had narcolepsy, and and she was out with her friends, and every time she laughed, she fell asleep. Mm. So yeah, I, it's the same principle for animals. It's kind of any big stimuli, where it often <sighs> sets it off. But why have I never heard of it? the the fact that C.S. Lewis? Like, the fact that there's a narcoleptic cat is rare enough. The fact that it belongs to C.S. Lewis <laughs> is even stranger. Now, the flip side of this is that I know Ernest Hemingway had a cat that had something like nine toes. Really? And these are now called Hemingway cats. Now, I don't know if you've read that and went... You've read that and you've read the word cataplexy and you're still sour after I tricked who, you with that talking fact. Who knows what I found in my search of authors? Oh, did C.S. Lewis have a narcoleptic cat? Oh, this is hard. Are you ready for a gut swing? I'm just going to take a swing at it. I'm going to say that... <laughs> I'm going to instantly regret this, but I'm going to say that he did have a narcoleptic cat. That Granger the cat belonged to C.S. Lewis <laughs> had narcolepsy. That's the strangest sentence I've ever said. Final answer? Oh, God. Final answer. It's true. It is all BS. (laughs) He did have a dog called Mr. Papworth and Troddles and Tim. Yes! 4-1. Oh, no, it's sitting in a whitewash. That was literally... Actually, this was inspired by a friend of mine. She sent us a text about a fact and she went, oh, Aslan was inspired by the death and resurrection of C.S. Lewis's cat. And I was like, right... (laughs) That's a bit too much, but I can work with narcolepsy. That'll do me. So are there narcoleptic animals? They are narcoleptic animals. Really? Yeah. I guess it's the kind of thing that in like wild animals would get bred out pretty quickly. <laughs> it is. It's actually, they said it's not as common in house cats as it is in um, wild cats, apparently. Wow. I think I read that. But yeah, cats do get narcolepsy. I don't know which Good other grief. animals can, but... Um, oh, yeah. I should have I should have seen through that. Uh, I, I was waiting for vengeance for exactly. weeks. Exactly. I'm, I'm going to find something out about Bloody vengeance <laughs> wreaked upon you for that bloody talking on the polar bear. <laughs> Okay.
before one. Uh, you know, the thing is, I used to, no one, no one except you really listening to this will know this, but I used to work somewhere called the Granger Market. Is that why you? <laughs> Is that why you call the cat Granger? No, actually, that's just a coincidence. Oh, I bet. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> right, okay. Okay, my last facts. Uh, Michael Faraday, mm-hmm. illustrious scientist, as well as being a fantastic scientist, held the record for Britain's biggest cauliflower <laughs> from 1848 <laughs> to 1952. No, no he didn't. <laughs> but do go on. Okay. Do go uh, on. There is more to this story than just the headline that I always write at the top of these mm. pages. So, yeah, Michael Faraday, he was born in 1791. In 1848, after he'd kind of really established himself as a scientist and was a member of the Royal Society and blah, 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 blah. Uh, in 1848, he was awarded a house in Hampton Court by the Prince Regent at the Master Mason's house. It's now called Faraday House. Mm. Um, and this house had a garden. And in said garden <laughs> was a gigantic cauliflower. Was it there when he moved in? It was there when he moved in. Well, really? we, well, we think no. it was there when he moved in. The reason we know about this cauliflower is that it's mentioned in his journals um, that shortly after him and his wife moved into this house, he pulled a, a huge cauliflower from the vegetable patch in the garden for no reason other than that... Um, it had grown so large that the plants around it had started to die and it started so to So it was some off. sort of destructive killer cauliflower <laughs> well, no. that would feed off those around it. I think it was probably more to do with the fact it was casting a shadow over them mm. rather than anything else. How big was this cauliflower? Well, th- this is the point. Uh, he mentions go. in his journal that the leaves of the cauliflower were 19 inches long and the head was 13 inches across. And it was so sort of striking that when they pulled it from the ground, they weighed it and it weighed 34 pounds which is about 15 kilos. Mm. So this is a massive cauliflower. In the world of gigantic vegetable growing, it's not particularly large, but this is the earliest record of an enormous (laughs) cauliflower uh, that we have. In that great study of history, (laughs) large vegetables. Well, which is why in 2008, the British Association of Vegetable Growers officially decided to award Michael Faraday this record. Mm which technically stood until 1952, which is when these records first started to be kind of actually noted down. Uh, And in 1952, he was beaten by uh, a lady called Alwyn Webster, uh, who grew a cauliflower in Porthcawl in Wales. Mm. Uh, The current record was set in 2014, if you really want to know. (laughs) Um, It's currently 27 and a half kilogram, which is 60 pounds. So it's a lot larger than the one that Faraday grew at. So it's not... He wasn't sort of one of these competitive vegetable growers. So was this... So the previous owner just had this he vegetable, had a vegetable patch. patch. And um, presumably the house was empty. This thing was just grown in the garden. Faraday moved in, realised it had killed everything off <laughs> uh, and thought, while I'm, here, Become this sentient. Is a, <laughs> while I'm here, this is a large cauliflower. I'll, I'll you know, write, I'll write it down this how down. big it was. So it wasn't like he was intentionally growing massive vegetables, mm. but only for the reason that he happened to note down how large it was mm. in his journals. The... Um, the British Association of Vegetable Growers decided to to kind of posthumously award him this reward. Not without controversy, though. Oh. In 2008, uh, they came out and released this thing saying, you know, we've just, well, we've heard about this in Michael Faraday's journals. We're going to officially say that the cauliflower record now began mm. in 1848. And Great he, day, I remember it well. <laughs> and he held this record for a century. This did not go down very well with members of the British Association of Vegetable Growers because there's no proof that he actually grew it himself. Mm. Um, presumably he didn't. So it was probably just in the garden when he moved in. So it was it's basically being credited to the wrong person. Mm. Uh, there is no verica- verification of 
at all about because he whether, I could write anything down in yeah, the 1840s. Exactly. It's just, um, I did whether this. The, his measurements were true or whatever, um, and the fact that anyone should hold a record before records were actually officially started to be sort of taken um, kind of riled a lot of people and it's sort of dismissed as a bit of a PR stunt oh, for, so quite frankly just... <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah it, it's kind of uh, just a bit of a fun story that they, they think they kind of did just to kind of raise a bit of PR more than anything else he wasn't intentionally growing a massive cauliflower he just found it he just happens so to it have... was the previous owner we yeah. should be trying to track it it, was, it just happened to be mentioned in his journals mm. but technically in uh, the statistics of this um, of this organisation Michael Faraday holds Holds this now holds this record. That's interesting. How long was the house kind of dormant before Faraday moved into it? Oh, Indian that now? I don't know. I don't know that at all. But I know that he lived there from 1848 until he died in 1867. Mm. And this is just a little side note in one of his journals that he that mm. he wrote in. Would have been in his 70s ish when he moved in. Is that right? Maybe um, am I getting the dates wrong a bit? No, he would have been in his mid 50s. Oh, you see, I'm way off there. Yeah, mid 50s. Born in 1791. Mm. So yeah, he was in his in his mid fifties. Um, so I'm just yeah. trying to think, like how, like if it's just kind of a wild cauliflower grown, like how long do wild cauliflowers last? I don't think it was. A, Why hadn't anything eaten it? I don't think it was a wild cauliflower. You think the rabbits would have been vegetable, but not in the centre of London. I don't think there's oh. many, <laughs> many in there. It's in Abbey Court. You don't know? Yeah. Um, no, I'm guessing that it was a, in a vegetable patch. So the guy who presumably occupied the house beforehand mm. was growing them. Um, quite what happened to him or who he was actually I haven't written down but yes it, it, he moved in and sort of tore this thing out of the ground and then realised that it was actually quite large happened to write about it and then the British Won Association the record, decided which to which then started a furore yeah of, yeah, of, yeah. Of, I don't think the current um, holder of the largest cauliflower is a man called uh, Peter Glazebrook mm. I, I can't imagine he's very happy that Faraday's muscled in on his act posthumously I think a lot of that is true those mm. Cauliflower growing facts, especially the modern day ones. That's something easy. Mm -hmm. You could just quickly Google. To be honest, I think that the original fact is true as well. It sounds blandly Victorian enough mm. to be true. Mm. And this is just a little diary entry. Oh, there's a giant cauliflower taking over the back garden. Yeah. It's, it's in the house now. Oh, it's God, not, it's, it's not like he abandoned science to become a <laughs> competitive vegetable grower. This does sound very true. I'm surprised no wild animals ate it, though. Surely there'd be something in London that would pounce on an untended vegetable patch. <laughs> I don't know. It's a children. <laughs> a desperate urban fox. <laughs> They've got a real appetite for cauliflower. Anyone needs nuts, you know. Right, I'm going to throw my immediate gut and say this is all true. Okay. Final answer? Go, final answer on that one. Okay, that entire story is BS. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only part of that that's true, apart from the fact that he actually lives at Hampton Court, um, the only part of that is true is that the current record holder is Peter Glazebrook. Shout out to Peter Glazebrook and his ass of cauliflower. <laughs> if, you, if you're listening. Uh, but yeah, no, I made all of that up. <laughs> really? Yeah. Hey, well done. That was... That was... It's such a, a gear change from your last fact as yeah, well. It's such well, a no, like you. It. You get me on these. You get me on schmaltzy stories. <laughs> you get me on calm, bland facts that you've made up as well. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't see through it. You were just suck it in. Yeah. Mm. No, I also made up the British Association of Vegetable Growers. It's the National Vegetable Society, of course, that looks after gigantic vegetable growers. What would you have done if I had known the difference and I was a big fan? I, I'd have lost the point and I would want to know where my gigantic cauliflower was. 
Hey, excellent. Four two. I don't mind losing because I got you on that fooling you one. I'll I'll, I'll gladly throw the episode oh, for that. Oh well, actually, I got that one right, but you just yeah. threw me into such a tizzy. I know, but that, that's what I just enjoyed so much about it. So, what have we found out today? What, exactly. What have we learned today? Everybody? Have we found out about the, about the Romans? Exactly. The Vindolanda tablets. That's. Yeah. A, I'd highly recommend anyone who's interested in history that's go look those up. Yeah, I like that. That's because I love. That sort of aspect of history, the the normal lives of people. Yeah. Like I'm sure there was, they found some old toilets somewhere, some Roman public toilets, and someone had scrawled, like, Varinus defecated here or something. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just did, like... did you write that <laughs> when you worked at Albia? So it just shows that like human beings haven't really changed a lot yeah, true. in the last no, 2,000 like years. Still. So it's like, so check them out if you're big on history. Mm. Um, we also learned that... Uh, but yeah, Burton and Russell almost turned down a very important job in China because of the person's name. I love that fact. Oh, it's that's really good. That might be my new favourite fact. It's my yeah. favourite 1920s fact. Yeah. yeah, that one. And although Michael Faraday never grew a gigantic cauliflower, we, we did find out that the blob was essentially a true story. Mm. I don't think it dissolved people. Unfortunately, <laughs> but... It just disappeared, apparently. Yeah, it was never seen but, again. Uh, yeah, there was, um, yeah, we found out about star jelly. Mm. I think most of my other two facts were both lies. But we yeah. did find out cats can be narcoleptic. That's true, yeah. Mm. That's interesting. I, I think I suffer from selective narcolepsy every time I talk to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, hope you've enjoyed it today and we'll see you next time. <laughs>